Welcome to the Lemper Report Live. Food prices continue to increase, but here's a way to save your shoppers money. Time to tap into mental health. Do labels really matter? Time to pop the champagne. TikTok has a new food competitor, and on the bullseye, food brands are fleeing from Elon Musk. Let's get started. So, Sally, let's talk about food inflation. We know that the grocery prices are up. Uh, just about every story that's out there is showing increases, depending on where you are in the country, between 12 and 15 percent. Also, a lot more stories coming out about how Thanksgiving is going to be more expensive. Uh, but there's a way that retailers can help. Um, really by by merchandising particular kinds of foods uh, to their to their shoppers to save money and get better health. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, what we're talking about today is um, encouraging our shoppers to look for seasonal produce. Now, this is not only going to save them money, Phil, but also when these fruits and vegetables are in season, they are brighter, they are plumper, they have they travel uh, they, they travel less distance, so they have um, more flavor. They have um, a higher concentration of nutrients. Uh, they're better for the environment because. Um, um, we, we use um, we use less uh, emissions to get them from one place to another. So it's a great way to encourage your shoppers to uh, use these products in recipes. Retail dietitians can help with that. Also, the USDA has a great um place on their website where you can look up what's in season and you can find recipes on how to use them. And then I also found this other cool website, seasonalfoodguide.org, where you can look up by your state and by the month what is in season. Yeah, great tools. And, you know, it's something that we've been talking about for years that I just wish that retailers would only sell produce that's in season. I remember as a kid, um, and I'm sure you did as well, that, you know, you would look forward to certain foods, certain produce items when they're in season. Um, you know, nobody was trying to buy peaches in January, you know, or strawberries in January. It just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I love, love these two sites that you found. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, for, for fall, we're in fall, you know, just some of the items that are in season. Um, apples, bananas, beets, bell peppers, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, carrots, cauliflower, celery. It just goes on and on uh, to probably another 20. Uh, same thing for winter. Apples, avocados, bananas, beets, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, kiwi fruit, lemons, limes, onions. I mean, the list goes on. So there's not going to be a shortage of produce items for us. I mean, people panic. Oh my God, if I'm only going to eat what's in season, then, you know, it's going to limit. It's not going to limit you. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to, as, as Sally pointed out, you're going to get something that's tastier, has better nutrition, and is less expensive. Wow, what a combination. Um, let's talk a bit about mindfulness. Um, you know, probably about four or five years ago, in our annual trend report, we highlighted mindfulness as one of the top 10 trends. Um, and now, um, there's this new report from the health marketing team. Uh, they just published their mental well-being category report. And what they have have 
issued is a proclamation that they've now entered, we have now entered uh, the third phase of health as consumer interest in health shifts from physical to mental. Um, also, what we're, what we're finding is because of COVID-19 clearly, depression rates have tripled over the course of the first year of the pandemic. And the climate crisis is another influencing factor. According to their global survey and peer-reviewed study led by Bath University and was published in Lancet, 75% of young people think the future is frightening. Can you imagine that, Sally? <laughs> Three out of four people um, think that the future is frightening. 45% say the climate concern negatively impacts their day. And nearly 60% of young people say that they feel worried or extremely worried about the future. Hello, you know, what are, what are we going to do if, if we've got all these um, younger generation people this nervous, this you know, anxiety, you know, driven, um, you know, what, what kind of future world are, are we going to have? So what we're now seeing is a lot more effort towards, you know, having more functional foods that deal with our mental ability. Yes. And this is, this is really a great trend. It comes on the heels of the pandemic where everyone was looking for immune boosting products and, and healthy foods. Um, but then, you know, we, we, we did see an uptick in depression and I think we're seeing people addressing their mental state and particularly their sleep. They want to eat foods that, uh, that will help them sleep. And, and we're looking at things that are a part of, um, that microbiome, which is, you know, is what we're talking about in the gut microbiome where all those viruses and bacterias live that are good and bad, but have a symbiotic relationship. And so we want we're looking for foods that balance that so that we can be healthy, but also feel really good mentally. Yeah. And, and it's an important thing to, to address. And, um, you know, for those of you that want to know more besides this article, go to the American Psychological Association. Um, they do, they do a report every year called stress in America and some great findings there that, that really, number one, are, are going to scare you um, what's going on, but also offering ways that we can do this. And certainly this mind-body connection um, with the foods that we eat can help a lot, um, whether it's sleep, whether it's just, you know, calming us down. Um, we don't need drugs to do that. We just need to eat, you know, better food. Uh, talking about better food in the UK, um, you know, more than three in five adults are overweight or obese. And one of the things that they've been doing uh, for a while there, uh, since April 2022, um, is now it's required on labels to have what's called PACE, physical activity calorie equivalent labels. Um, so the example that's, that's given here is a 1014 calorie large battered haddock. Uh, the portion of fish would take upwards of five hours of walking to burn it off. So they have this whole uh, scheme um, of, of putting, you know, the amount of calories that you can burn by walking against that food, that particular food. Um, so it sounds like a good idea, but is it? <laughs> 
Well, according to the results of this, you know, they looked at they they looked at a bunch of different people in um, workplace cafeterias and such where and they studied, you know, whether or not this influenced their choices. And um, apparently these these studies are showing that it did not um it did not encourage them to choose healthier products, which, you know, is kind of surprising in one way, because you think, you know, people like Fitbits, they like to, to track their exercise throughout the day. So they might enjoy this. But like you just said, if you're, you're eating something that says, oh, it's going to take you five hours to work this off, then that might be kind of discouraging. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really talks about all labels. Um, so whether it's this PACE label, whether it's, you know, the different schemes that we've got in this country um, saying if it's a good food or a bad food, I really think we've gone, you know, label crazy, if you would. And if we could just get people to turn around the package, look at the nutritional information, look at the ingredients, you know, I don't think we'd really need these these labels. We're trying to make it so easy. Um, and again, USDA now working on this healthy food label, going to probably cause more confusion than ever before. Um, I think we just need to get back to the basics of nutritional panels and, and ingredients. Now, um, in, in about a month from now, at the end of December, there's a tax break that goes away. Um, so as it goes away, what's happening, and this is amazing to me, is you have a lot of companies that are having these huge parties at restaurants. Now, the, the tax break has to do with the meal um, deduction being 100% deducted, but has to be at a restaurant. It can't be food from a uh, caterer. It can't be food, you know, that, that you have in your office. It can't be food um, that you buy at a grocery store. And as a result, I mean, people are buying, people are going crazy, wasting money. Um, they're buying wines for, you know, $1,000 a bottle just to get this tax deduction. I think a lot of money is being wasted. And the excuse is basically, um, you know, they want to build relationships with their customers. Um, so they figure if they have this lavish, you know, restaurant dinner, uh, they're going to build better relationships. The where this all falls apart in my in my mind, besides the waste of money and and probably the waste of food is also the restaurant industry is hurting for staffing, for qualified staffing and for, you know, more products. They still have some supply chain prog problems. So, you know, if I'm going into a restaurant and there's going to be this lavish party, who knows if they're even going to have enough wait staff to make it enjoyable. Yes, and it's interesting because this, um, this um, tax break was introduced in 2021 to help restaurants that were struggling because of the pandemic. And so maybe it did its job during that time. And it is a good thing that it's going to end at the end of this year. Yeah. And in the meantime, don't have a party and waste money. Just <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, so it looks like TikTok has a new competitor, uh, Flavors. That's F-L-A-V-R-S. Um, there's no O in it. Um, it's a new app that has these great videos on it. Um, 
cooking instructions, as well as ingredients, as well as you press another button and guess what happens? You can order all those ingredients right from Instacart. Now, this is something that's been talked about for a while. When we launched Food Network, uh, so that's 25, 26 years ago, uh, basically um, someone had come with the technology that you could take your remote, you can point it at the TV, if there was a food scene, um, let's say you're you know, watching The Godfather and they have all these great food scenes, you press the button and what would happen is all the ingredients for that dinner that was on uh, The Godfather would come up on your screen, you press another button, you could buy it. Well, didn't happen then, but now 25 years later, uh, Flavor is doing just that. Uh, so Sally, tell us about it. Yes, I love this app. I'm so excited to try it. In fact, I, I downloaded it, Phil, and was all ready to, to get it going. Um, but there's actually a wait list for this. They are they are tapped out right now. So I'm on that email list to try it. But I love what the um, co-founder and chief executive officer of this app says. His name is Alejandro, Alejandro Oropesa. And um, he says that this is like a Spotify playlist for food. So you can kind of aggregate your um, your different collections, you know, by like your French foods, your Mexican foods, your holiday foods. And I also love what he says, how this is different is that, you know, that this isn't a regular cooking app, that this is this is an app for crazy people who live to eat. Right. You know, I, I think that um, it's going to be a home run. I've, I've also signed up uh, for the wait list and um, hopefully in a couple weeks we'll both be on it. We could revisit this, uh, but it sounds like it's a really smart idea. They've got some major uh, money behind them. Um, it's backed by Eric Reipert and Tom Colicchio. Um, they also got $7 million in seed funding. Uh, the groceries are being delivered by Instacart, so they didn't have to build that infrastructure. Um, so it's just a really smart idea from two really smart young guys. Um, so can't wait to try it. I agree. So the CMA and SEMA hosted a panel discussion with some of the top women in retail to discuss their career journeys. You can hear from the heads of category management and shopper insights from Tyson, Unilever, Home Hardware, and Sam's Club on the impact of time spent in sales and in operations. Members of the CMA can access the full replay of the webinar in the resource library. Non-members can visit catman.global to contact the association about membership. And here's what they have to say. Have any of you held any roles outside of category management and shopper insights and which maybe have helped you the most for our function? Like, was it sales, Lisa, for you? Like maybe think about, you know, which functional area was the best influence on what you do today? Yeah. So mine's been Catman shopper insights strategy and sales. So I haven't gone into, I have had experience in projects, but not roles for me. So okay. for me, it clearly was the sales piece of it. Right. And so, okay. And it was actually later in my career, if I could do it again, I would have done it much sooner. Um, okay. It was the frame of, the, uh, I don't like the word support. I'm just going to say, I, I know we talk about Catman as a, as a support, but I do, I really do think they are partners in the business. Um, but having that then 
um, visibility to negotiations of hey, if every decision could be made purely on data and insights and puristic shopper understanding, we live in an amazing world. But the reality is that's not always the case, right? And so managing a PL, operational, bud budgets, pricing, inflation, those things that come in to have that that centric grounding to understand what other impact or factors are impacting decisions and knowing how you navigate through those. So for me, it absolutely was that sales side where like, I understand it. I'm, you know, I'm partnering with them all the time, but until yeah. you have that granularity of running the promotional plan and running your trade lines, um, you understand the factors that sometimes may be blind to us in a category partner role. What about you, Miriam? Was it on the supply chain or operation side that you feel like was the best influence or something uh, else? I honestly, I think the operational part uh, okay. that was that was the most impactful for me. Um, at, at the end of the day, like it all comes down to execution. So if you don't understand that last whatever mile or however we want to call it, kilometer, meter, whatever that is, it's. Yeah. It, it, it all comes down to execution. So uh, I would say the operational part of what I've learned in my career has been has been absolutely amazing. On today's Bullseye, food brands pause their advertising on Twitter. There's been a lot reported on Elon Musk and Twitter and how major advertisers on the platform have paused their advertising spend as they wait to see what the new Twitter will actually look like and how its voice may change. We've paused advertising on Twitter, a spokesperson for General Mills told CNN. In a separate note, the Wall Street Journal was told by the serial maker, we will continue to monitor this new direction and evaluate our marketing spend. CNN also reported that Interpublic Group, a global buyer of advertising for clients that include Unilever and Coke, recommended that its clients pause advertising on the platform as well. In a tweet, Musk acknowledged the advertising loss. Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation, and we did everything we could to appease the activists. Not activists, Musk. They're advertisers. While it's easy for these brands and agencies to point a finger at him and the uncertainty of the platform's future, I have to wonder if it's a convenient excuse. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of Musk's, nor of his own use of Twitter to propagate untruths now and in the past. But the question I have to ask is whether these agencies and the brands they represent were actually getting their money's worth from Twitter even before he came. Advertising is all about reach and frequency, sure, and in many ways, Twitter has been able to deliver those. But what about moving product off supermarket shelves? We know that sampling works, that coupons and promotion move product, and mass media like television and radio are also powerful media that sell food. But social media has always had questionable metrics. Perhaps it's because the channels are just so large that it's tough to point to any one of them and say that that one sold product. I was on a call last week with grocery retailers who have been using social media to promote events, and they all agreed that organic social did very little to move the needle. And a few said that paid social posting actually did have an effect, but what, not what they had hoped for. If social, including Twitter, wants food brands, they have to sell product. 
TikTok has done an extraordinary job in not only supporting the sale of foods, both in supermarkets and in restaurants, but the company has gone out of their way to publicize their success. If Elon Musk truly wants to make Twitter successful, it's not about firing half its workforce. It's proving to brands that are fleeing the platform that it can actually sell cars, insurance, and foods. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget our archives are on supermarketguru.com. We post new articles every single day. And make sure you join us um, next week, same time, same place, right here for more of the Lemper Report Live.